0: This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird
1: Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. Did you recognize that bird call? We'll be talking about that particular species of bird in just a moment when we return to Bird Hugger.
0: What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds.
1: Hello there, and welcome back to Bird Hugger. I hope you're all doing well and that you enjoy the holidays. We're into a new year now, filled with the hope and promise of better things to come. It's time to turn over a new leaf, excuse the pun, and set our sights on a brand new year of gardening, bird watching, and restoring native habitat. Before we get started again, I just have one thing I'd like to say. It's such a pleasure to do this show, and it's an even greater pleasure to know that so many of you are listening. It still kind of boggles my mind. We're getting new listeners all the time, and I owe it all to you. Thank you for all of the love and support you've been showing us and for the word of mouth you've been giving the show. Because we don't advertise this show. Any growth that we experience, we directly attribute to our listeners out there spreading the word. So thank you all very much. So I just wanted to discuss a few changes that are going on here at Bird Hugger. The format will be the same. However, to make the show a little more interesting and fun, we will no longer be giving away the name of the bird making its call in the title of the show. The mystery bird will not be revealed until the natural history segment appears in the show. This will give you a chance to test your bird knowledge. Also, we will be conducting citizen experiments and reporting the results on Bird Hugger. We urge you to get involved and try participating in these projects. Your results can help educate the public and create more forward momentum in restoring native habitat. And of course, we are always working on audio quality. We spent the entire first season working on the overall audio quality of the show, and we will be devoting the second season to fine-tuning audio quality during our interview segments. And I just wanted to say, if you're feeling bleak because of the midwinter blues, just keep in mind that time does fly. For so many of us, the fulfillment that gardening brings, be it mental, emotional, physical, and even spiritual, is a big part of our lives. So take heart, because in a matter of 90 days, it will be spring, and there is plenty to do right now to get ready before it arrives. And with that in mind, I think we've got a great show for you today. We will be talking to Heather Holm. She's a biologist and bee expert, and she'll be telling us all about the biology and behavior of the bumblebee in the native flower garden. Thanks again, and here's to a great 2021. And now for some interesting information about monarchs. A study out of the University of Kentucky is showing that the placement of milkweed in the garden can determine how many eggs are laid by monarch butterflies. The research found that gardens where milkweed plants were evenly spaced around the outside perimeter of the garden rather than being intermixed with other nectaring flowers, shrubs, and grasses, showed a marked increase in the number of eggs laid. Gardens where milkweed was located separately from other nectaring plants showed up to four times the number of monarch eggs. The research, which was published in the Journal of Frontiers of Ecology and Evolution, studied small urban gardens and recorded how the location of milkweed plants affected the colonization of monarch populations. Milkweed plants were monitored for monarch colonization over two successive growing seasons in gardens planted in several different configurations. They found two and a half to four times more monarch eggs and larvae in the gardens when milkweeds were spaced three feet apart from each other around a perimeter of nectaring flowers. The researchers also studied 22 existing butterfly gardens in central Kentucky and found the gardens with milkweed planted in a uniform pattern side by side and separated from other nectaring flowers, saw a yield of monarch eggs and larvae five times higher than unstructured gardens. The study suggests that milkweed plants are easier for the monarch butterfly to find when they are separated from other nectaring plants. The research scientists also discovered more monarch eggs and larva were produced in gardens with unobstructed access as opposed to gardens that were partially obstructed by buildings like houses, garages, barns, and garden sheds. According to the scientist, having unobstructed north-south access to flower gardens seems pivotal for monarchs to find milkweed plants. Did you recognize that bird call at the beginning of the show? That's the call of the northern flicker. The first thing you notice right away about this 12- to 14-inch long bird is its eye-catching plumage. A cosmopolitan look worthy of a fashion runway. But wait a second. That doesn't make sense. Aren't woodpeckers supposed to have the standard black, white, and red feathering? Not this woodpecker. The northern flicker sports a very pretty tan brown body and wings, decorated with wavy black lines, along with a light gray neck plumage accented by a cream-colored chest festooned with black dots. And as if that weren't stylish enough, this fancy bird also sports red or yellow wing and tail feather shafts, a black crescent at the base of its throat and a showy white rump, making this bird the Ralph Lauren of woodpeckers. There are red-shafted flickers and yellow-shafted, meaning they either have red or yellow feather shafts. The call you just heard is that of the yellow-shafted northern flicker. This is the flicker that frequents the eastern side of the United States, although it should be stated here that red-shafted and yellow-shafted flickers do mix, mingle, and interbreed causing hybridization and lots of migraine headaches for ornithologists. Now, don't you usually find most woodpeckers clinging vertically to the sides of trees? Not this woodpecker. You're more likely to find a northern flicker on the ground in a forested area or along the edge of wetlands, hammering away at the ground and looking to scoop up their favorite food, ants and beetles, including their larvae. And while they can easily scale vertically up and down a tree trunk like their woodpecker cousins, they can more often be seen perching on branches like songbirds. Another unusual aspect of the northern flicker? The bird has developed a curved bill, an unusual trait for a woodpecker. It uses this curved bill to dig in the ground and root around for the ants and beetles that it craves. In addition, while most woodpeckers have tongues designed for spearing and extracting insects from deep inside wood, the Northern Flicker has a curved tongue coated with sticky saliva, specially designed to probe into anthills and lap up ants. The Flicker can consume thousands of ants in a single feeding. The Northern Flicker is also particularly fond of flies and moths, and also enjoys a good snail in season. When winter arrives, the northern flicker manages to subsist on nuts as well as berries and seeds from native black cherry, sumac, dogwood, elderberry, hackberry, thistle, and poison ivy. The flicker looks for dead and decaying trees for potential nesting sites and has a preference for white poplar, also known as quaking aspen, which has a tendency to fall prey to heart rot, making the bark and wood easier to drill through. They are not fussy when it comes to choosing nesting sites and will often return to the previous year's nesting site if it is still available. This bird also has no compunctions about reusing cavities that have been previously inhabited by other birds and will even roost in earthen burrows that are normally used by kingfishers. Flickers fill their nest cavities with wood chips from their excavation to create a soft bed for the eggs and nestlings. The female typically lays five to eight eggs, and the eggs usually hatch within 12 days. And while the northern flicker is not picky when it comes to nesting sites, the males can become quite tempestuous during mating season and will even engage in duels or sword fights with other males, swinging their heads clockwise to brandish their beaks in a threatening manner in order to win over a female. This species wins the trophy for most talkative bird. In fact, this bird's happy chattering is loud and can be heard throughout the entire forest. The flicker's call is usually a good sign that spring has arrived. These birds are not only attention-seeking with their stylish plumage and joyful call. It should be said flickers put rock and roll drummers to shame. They are famous for their determined tree drilling, another sound that carries throughout the forest, which serves to mark territory with other males and alert mates to their location. Its talent for drawing attention has earned it over 100 folk names, including Hey Ho, Hammerhead, Yellowhammer, Wicca, Antwoodchuck, Carpenter Bird, Yakker, Yeller, Wickup, Yarup, and Up. In other words, there's just no ignoring a northern flicker. The northern flicker is the most widespread woodpecker species living in North America. This bird can be found from western Alaska and northern Canada all the way down to Cuba. The oldest known yellow-shafted northern flicker lived to be nine years old. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. And now I'd like to introduce Heather Holm. Heather is a biologist, a pollinator conservationist, and an award-winning author who has written two books about bees. The first book is titled Pollinators of Native Plants, Attract, Observe, and Identify Pollinators and Beneficial Insects with Native Plants. Her second book is Bees, an Identification and Native Plant Forage Guide, and this book covers native trees, shrubs, and perennials in the Northeast, Great Lakes, and Midwest regions. Heather travels all over the U.S. giving educational presentations about the fascinating world of the native pollinator. Okay, I'm delighted to have Heather Holm join us on the show today. Heather, thank you for joining us. Thanks,
2: Catherine. Great to be here.
1: Yeah, it's great to have you here. My absolute number one favorite insect is bumblebees. So I'm hoping we can talk about bumblebees today. I know you've written several books about bees but I have a particular fondness for bumblebees, and I'd really like to talk to you today about what their role is in the native flower garden. Could okay. you kind of run us through a typical season from the time the queens emerge in the late winter, early spring, all the way to when the new queens go into the nest for the winter, just so people have an understanding of the crucial role that they play in the native garden?
2: Absolutely. I think understanding the life cycle of starting with bumblebees is is really important for people who are being stewards of the land or managing gardens. And as you said, what's different about our bumblebees, most people base their knowledge on how bees behave and how bees live on honeybees. And our native bees are very different. Bumblebees make up a small percentage of native bees that have a social nest but the big difference between bumblebees and honeybees is that is the nest is annual so as you said catherine those new queens are coming out of hibernation in the spring and then they're looking for a place to nest depending on where you live i'm in the upper midwest so that nest has to be in a pretty insulated place usually below ground in a rodent hole if you're further south you may find nests above ground They may even occupy abandoned bird nest boxes in some cases. But what's really critical from a gardening standpoint is that time frame in spring, you need to have a number of different plants offering both pollen and nectar for those queen bumblebees. So so she has the the nutrients to go about her daily activities and to do that nest establishment. So she starts producing broods and her first broods are typically all females and those her daughters or workers then start to help her with foraging in the landscape to collect pollen and nectar so at that point in time midsummer when you start to see more bumblebees in your garden that's what you're seeing is those worker broods that have been produced what that means from a colony standpoint is the queen can safely remain in the nest so she's continuing to do all the egg laying and producing more and more broods And later in the summer, our native bumblebee colonies start producing males. And then shortly after that, they start producing the new queens or gynes. And the emergence of those two casts coincides and they mate while they're out foraging in the landscape. And then our bumblebee colonies, all the bees in those colonies perish, except for those new queens. And they're the ones that find a place to safely tuck themselves for the winter in our gardens and landscapes.
1: That is great. Thank you. So the next question I have is about the fragility of the bumblebee in the late winter, early spring, because that's the time when all the mow and blow crews come out. They come out with the leaf blowers and the treatments, you know, they're spiking the lawn with different nutrients to get the lawns to grow. And there's a lot of foot, footfall, a lot of activity stepping over the ground. I'm kind of a worry wart, you know, so I don't let anyone in my garden late winter, early spring. What I do is I lie on the lawn. I lie on the grass and I put my ear to the ground and listen for the buzzing underground. Wow. You can sort of figure out the timing of it, you know, if you can hear them buzzing under the leaves. And if I hear that, I don't let anyone come near my yard until yeah, you, totally certain that they have all emerged.
2: Yeah, you made a great point. I mean, people often don't think about those, all of those things that you described are disturbances, right? And landscapes that have little or no disturbance typically have higher insect populations, so if we're peeling off all that insulation layers of leaves that have been sitting there for the winter, there's a number of beneficial insects overwintering under the leaf litter, and including some, sometimes bumblebees, depending on where you live. And so you're really doing a lot of damage if that disturbance is occurring before most of those insects are emerging out as adults. One thing you can do is as a phenological cue is to wait until your soil temperatures warm up. So 50 degrees Fahrenheit is a good sort of starting point. You can, I actually in my home garden will measure with just a digital kitchen thermometer. I'll go around and poke different areas of my garden to see what's the soil temperature at. Because it's just human nature. We get those really nice warm spring days, you know, where I live, the snow is melted. Gardeners are keen to get out and start working in their garden, but it's better to wait and wait as long as possible. It
1: is very difficult because we have long, hard winters here in uh, northern New England, which is where I'm located, and yeah, we get cabin fever. We just want to, I see people wearing shorts in January outside sometimes. People just get kind of loony. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> before, yep, same, same <laughs> here. Yep. Warm day, the sun is out, everyone gets spring fever. It wants to get the gardening all done in a single day, right? Out right. here for seven or eight hours, and it, it just does so much damage to the not just the bees, but also the plants too.
2: Right. And it's also the the folks who have businesses, you know, they I have people email me and say, is it too early? Because we really want to start working in our, you know, get our clients' gardens ready for spring. And I say, hold off, hold off, hold off. But I can understand from a business standpoint that that lull between perhaps their winter decoration, snow plowing season, and sp- spring and garden maintenance and planting season, I'm sure they would like a to have that income coming in.
1: <laughs> right. You go to any of the big box stores and the whole front of the outside of the store is heaped 10 feet high with soil amendments and mowers and lime throwers and just about everything you could think of for you know the home and garden enthusiast. So you're saying 50 degrees is a trigger for the queen bumblebee to emerge from their winter den?
2: Not necessarily the queens, but a lot of other beneficial insects will start breaking diapause which is that suspension of development and 50 degrees fahrenheit is sort of the starting point every insect has their own cues and unique things that they use for triggers to emerge whether they're in the ground or under plant debris so it's really it's really variable it's just you know 50 degrees is just a really generalized basic starting point for people to think about. And and my intent in telling people that is just for them to understand those first few weeks in the spring, even though you've had warm day temperatures, that soil temperature isn't warming up very quickly. So if at all possible to use, you know, to do some, some measurements in your home garden to get a better sense of when it's appropriate to start tromping around and doing some garden work. Right,
1: and that fifty degrees does that have to occur for a certain number of days before the insects start to emerge or the bees start to emerge?
2: Yeah, generally, you know, soil doesn't backtrack too much unless you know with climate change where you live in the Northeast and where I live, we've had some pretty wacky springs where we have a warm up and then then we'll have a, a snow event in April and the temperatures will recede and drop back in that situation. And that's another reason why it's better to wait, because we have you know, significant changing weather patterns that are really impacting a lot of those early spring species. I've been monitoring, for example, a nesting aggregation of a solitary bee. It's one of the first species that comes out of the ground in the spring. And they emerged here the last day of March. And then a week after their emergence we had a significant snowfall that the snow lasted on the ground for another 10 days so that's pretty that's a pretty precarious situation because there isn't anything blooming in the landscape for those males or females to find food and they you know will start really depleting all the fat stores that they have and energy stores and burning them up before they're able to get to work in producing the next generation so that i think a lot of those early early spring species are will be impacted with our changing weather so
1: the queen bumblebee emerges from her underground den and it like you say is starving right
2: yeah so she those new queens when they uh are produced in the nest starting in you know mid to late august or into early fall what they do is once they become adults, they they leave the nest where they were raised for, and they go out in the landscape and practice foraging on flowers. They get some experience visiting different flowers, learning how to manipulate them, but the more critical piece to that is that they're consuming nectars of different flowering plants, and it's those nectars that are helping them build fat stores. And if they don't have an adequate or really nutritious set of plants out in the landscape, then they may not survive the winter because it's those fat stores that they burn through while they're hibernating. And so when spring comes around, and again, talking about those weather, crazy weather events, you know, those queens are completely depleted. They've, they've made it through the winter, and that's why early spring plants are really, really critical for them. Otherwise, they won't survive.
1: Right. So the queens emerge, and hopefully there are native plants nearby that are blooming and are offering nectar
2: Nectar and then pollen as well, if they' they're starting to build nests, they need pollen. So willows is a really critical one for where you live in the northeast or where I am. That's generally one of the first blooming plants in spring, and willows are very nutritious, provide both nectar and pollen. They're separate male and female plants, but generally <laughs> they're usually growing in the same thicket or area or wetland. If you're really keen on finding some some of those bumblebee species that emerge really early find find some willows and camp out there and you'll see some queens.
1: Right. Now what if someone does not have willows nearby?
2: Well, there's some other flowering trees such as red maple. That's a really early spring blooming species. Bumblebees don't use red maple as much, but red maple is provides some of the first forage for our solitary native bees that are coming out early in spring. So that's something to think about. People often think pollinator gardening or gardening for bees just is with just perennials and trees and shrubs really play a critical role in spring and are often filling that, that first spring sort of subset of phenological overlap of blooming plants. So flowering trees, flowering shrubs, dogwoods, viburnums, uh, things such as you know our, many of our native shrubs bloom fairly early and they would be providing pollen and nectar for for many of our native bees.
1: Now, what about native plants? Are there native plants that our listeners, we've got a, our listeners a lot are brand new to native gardening and they have a lot of questions, especially about pollinators and the role they play in their flower gardens. Would something like lungwort or pulmonaria be beneficial? I know it's not exactly a native.
2: Yeah, Lungwort's in the related to borage. It does get visitation by spring bumblebees. A similar plant would be Virginia bluebells. That's a that's a really critical spring bumblebee plant. Dutchman's breeches, often flowers with some of those when those first queens of the earlier species are emerging. So visitation in early spring is really subtle, and that's the other thing to think about. It's not this pollinator bonanza as I call it in the middle of summer when you have all these different flowering plants aggregated together and every a lot of things going on it takes a keen observer to really see bee visitation in the spring so those queens are especially in where you are in in wooded northeast they're going to be spending a lot of time in in woodlands looking for some of those early spring blooming plants for for nectar and pollen sources as well
1: now, what about something like bleeding heart? Bleeding
2: heart is similar to the Dutchman's breeches, so it will receive visitation by bumblebees as well. It's got, you know, more complex that's a thing to talk about as well. Is it's the the flower shape and the flower form will really dictate what kind of bee could visit that plant or bloom. And Dutchman's breeches is similar to bleeding heart. They have really kind of complex flowers that Generally, only bumblebees are able to manipulate and have tongues long enough to reach the nectaries.
1: Right. What about native geranium?
2: Native geranium is excellent. It's uh, both a nectar and pollen plant. It also uh, supports a pollen collecting specialist native bee that we have in the eastern U.S. So. That's something for folks getting into native gardening, one of the really important things about native plants is they they support specialists. So it's similar to planting milkweed for monarch butterflies. We have anywhere from 25 to 37 percent of native bees in the eastern U.S. that are native plant specialists so the females will only collect pollen from a certain kind of plant. so we have a wild geranium specialist and those females only collect wild geranium pollen so pretty precarious lifestyle being a specialist if you if your host plant isn't out in abundance or availability right so for our listeners the the ideal scenario
1: for just getting back to bumblebees for a second <laughs> would be to provide, you know, the willow tree, first thing, so that the queens have access to the nectar they need to just get caught up and get enough food stores so they can survive spring, and then they can go on to their foraging. So having a wave of native tree shrubs and perennials that bloom in succession throughout the entire season. Right, right. The ideal... So near, I guess, for any of the pollinators, but especially if you want bumblebees in your yard.
2: Right. And there's some research out of Massachusetts that's really looking at bumblebee species specific plants. And we used to think. Most socially nesting bees were what we'd call generalist pollinators, meaning they're they're active for the entire growing season because of the colony life cycle. They will visit any on and all plants that they can access and don't have preferences. But what we're now learning is that they do indeed have preferences. And so one bumblebee species may only have three spring pollen sources, and that could include willow, gooseberry, genus Ribes, and then maybe a spring flowering perennial Baptisia, for example, are there three you know, really critical pollen sources for a given species. So starting to parse out more for the public to understand that Not all plants are are offering both pollen and nectar and an individual bee may be only seeking one out of the two floral resources.
0: Right.
1: So the other issue I think too is for people just getting started as native gardeners, many of whom have been non-native perennial gardeners for decades, and I include myself in that, we feel pressed to take out the non-natives and replace them with natives. But I think in this case, we have to kind of tread carefully here because the bumblebee does gravitate to pulmonaria or lungwort, which is not a true native plant here. I guess you'd call it naturalized. It's managed to survive in several different uh, microclimates in New England. So I, I think the new native gardener needs to kind of tread very carefully and do research to make sure that whatever it is you're taking out is not gonna cause a, a bumblebee you know, collapse.
2: Right, yeah, I think that's a very good point. So if you're sort of hybridizing your traditional or mostly non-native garden by adding native plants, you would want to do so really thoughtfully. And there, if you're, for example, say, I'm gonna take out all these non-natives and put in these natives, but the natives you put in are nectar sources and the non-natives you took out were pollen sources, then you've sort of created an imbalance of what a bee may need for its floral resources. Generally, that's for the summer blooming plants, I would say go ahead and swap out stuff or replace. But you would want to be a little more careful for spring blooming things for sure. Right. Can you talk
1: a moment about nectar refill time? Are there some natives that are beneficial to bees and bumblebees that have a, a, a quicker nectar refill time than, say, other plants? I know nativars and non-natives are famous for it's sort of a one-and-you're-done. You know, there's nectar for the first few bees that manage to get there. And once those stores are emptied, that's it. The natives tend to have a, a, a nectar refill time. Some of them are quick. Some of them are 40 minutes. Some of them are several days. Are there several natives you could recommend with a quick
2: nectar refill time? Yeah, so it's really, really, really plant specific. But so that's one advantage bumblebees have is they, you know, they're big, burly, really hairy bees. So they can forage in cool temperatures. So they're, they're really the early bird that gets the worm. So they get up early. They go out and forage. They're hitting all those plants that may have a 24-hour nectar production cycle and are replenishing nectar stores overnight. So bumblebees visit those plants first thing in the morning. And as you said, Catherine, they they deplete all the nectar stores for the, the next 24 hours. So they have that advantage. On the flip side, plants such as wild bergamot or bee balm, that's in the mint family that plant continuously replenishes its nectar over over the day but all of that is dependent upon whether the plant has enough sunlight and water and you know all those things to have the resources to keep replenishing nectar so it's very very plant specific and pollinators take advantage of those nectar production cycles and sort of know when to visit a plant particularly in early early morning <laughs> So drought-like conditions, is that going to affect the
1: nectar replenishment abilities of native plants?
2: Absolutely, yeah. So any stressor like that will diminish the plant's ability to you know, produce nectar and replenish nectar. There's probably other things at play. Soil health, whether the soil is healthy and there's mycorrhizal fungi helping to provide nutrients to the plants in order for them to produce pollen and nectar so there's a ton of different variables but the basic thing to think about is if a plant is stressed it's most likely not going to produce as much you know nectar as it would if it had all the moisture and sunlight and conditions that it needs
1: one of the plants my bumblebees depend upon at the end of the season is the tart of a hydrangea tree The tardiva offers nonstop nectar. It's like a gourmet buffet for bumblebees. They love it. However, due to the drought-like conditions we had, the tardiva did not bloom as fully as it usually does, and the blooms did not last very long. I think my bumblebees really took a hit this year.
2: I can imagine. that. That's a great plant for a number of flower-visiting insects. Predatory wasps love that hydrangea. And you'll find a whole suite of different insects you don't normally see visiting that plant. So
1: just swinging back to springtime again, let's say, because we were just talking about spring fever, it's so hard to control yourself when the weather is nice. I mean, short of locking yourself in a closet, it's really hard to stay away from the yard. So let's say someone wants to dig up a section of the garden to prepare it for new plants Another part of spring fever, of course, is driving to the garden center and buying everything that hits your eye that is brightly colored. What should the gardener look for so they don't inadvertently dig up a bumblebee nest?
2: That's pretty hard because they're very difficult to know or find. Even their nests, you think, oh, it'd be easy to spot their nests. Their nests are notoriously hard to find, even when people are actively looking for them and so it's even harder to find an overwintering queen she's going to be typically below ground as we talked about in a rodent hole she may be tucked into a thick layer of underneath a thick layer of leaves some have been found overwintering in a compost bin or pile you know that's multi-layered and she'll tuck herself in there you're operating blindly essentially because it's really, you wouldn't know that a queen would be there. For solitary bees, if you're observant, then you would know you had nests in the ground the previous growing season. And that would be a place to avoid digging until you see the adults emerge. And then you can start maybe carefully adding some plants in that nesting area. But it's all about sort of being watchful, taking walks through your garden, especially in early spring before the vegetation starts to grow look for nests. And that will give you a sense of where the bees like to nest. And maybe you can provide similar situations, whether it's maybe patchy vegetation or particular soil type that they're attracted to. And that will inform you about where and when to to do some digging and planting. The other thing I recommend for people is buy the smallest plant possible. So a lot of Our Midwestern native plant growers grow the native plants in deep cell packs, for example. So you're not digging a huge hole, right? You're just digging a two-inch diameter hole to plug in this plant that's been growing in a cell pack. And in contrast to buying one-gallon perennials, you're out there with your garden shovel doing some really extensive digging and disturbance to plant plants that size. And you can save a lot of money by buying more smaller plants versus big one-gallon plants. And it's all about that disturbance. People that start thinking about just subtly and carefully digging rather than converting a whole area with your big shovel. That's one of the reasons I have stopped
1: dividing perennials unless I absolutely have to, because of the disturbance. Dividing means I have to dig a huge hole. Then I have to dig multiple holes to plant the divisions. So I have taken to doing what you just said, planting singly in spots to fill in empty spaces and making the hole as small as possible so I'm not disturbing the soil biome. Digging big holes, I mean, aside from disturbing the nest, is not good for the soil anyway, especially digging large holes in the early spring. It really damages the soil.
2: Right. Any time of year, if you're extensively turning over soil or digging or tilling is really problematic for soil health. Yeah, you really wanna tread carefully with your soil. It's this living thing that is so important to plant health and so poorly understood and really until recently (laughs) that we know about all of these symbiotic relationships with soil microorganisms and plants. We've just sort of always treated it like a medium to put plants into, but it's, it's a living thing that needs to be cared for like we care for our plants. So tell me, where do the queens like to go to overwinter? It really depends. But one theory is that the new queens really are attracted to the the smell of rodent nests or former rodent nests. Some bumblebee queens establish their nests in old mouse nests, for example, because the nest is already providing some insulation, insulative materials. So they will even be attracted to that smell for hibernation spots as well.
1: Once the queen emerges and starts foraging, what's the next step for them? Do they find an entirely new?
2: Yep. So they never would reuse the nest they grew up in. Those nests, basically, uh, all the materials, the wax pots and so on, break down really quickly and... Uh, those are never reused so she would the new queen would be looking for her own place to nest and that nest searching period can go from anywhere from a week to two weeks and I call it the the Cinderella period and so in spring if you're observant if you see a really large bumblebee flying close to the ground sort of weaving you know back and forth over the ground investigating different places I have a boulder wall, for example, in my garden and the queen will investigate cracks in between the boulders and they'll investigate holes in the ground. So there's this whole sort of nest searching thing that goes on for quite some time until they finally find the the perfect place to to start the nest.
1: So now once the nest is formed, the she lays her eggs and the eggs start to hatch?
2: Yeah, so she establishes the nest. And then the most critical thing is finding those plants that are providing pollen. She needs to go and collect a significant amount of pollen and she'll make a large pollen ball. And on that pollen ball, she'll lay multiple eggs and those eggs are fertilized and they produce her female, her daughters, her workers. And she also will be collecting nectar, and queen bumblebees are similar to honeybees. They have the ability to to produce wax. They secrete it from uh, from a part of their abdomen, and so she will make wax pots. They're called nectar pots, and she'll go out and the, visit flowering plants, consume nectar, store it in her crop, and then when she returns to the nest, she regurgitates nectar into a little nectar pot, and that's kind of her food store. And that's really important because, you know, they're establishing nests in early spring with crazy weather patterns, four or five days of rain. They've got some food to keep them going in the nest. That's not the case for solitary bees. They generally don't store food like that. So they're really susceptible when we have the really wacky weather patterns that don't enable them to get food from flowering plants in the landscape.
1: Right. So another hazard for bumblebees would be watering, right? Turning on the lawn sprinkler?
2: Yeah, watering can be, could impact nests, but generally those rodent holes are designed for rain events, right? So they may go down, but then they'll tip back up a little bit, the burrow. So I don't think there's real concern about the nest becoming saturated unless the queen really picked the wrong place in the rodent burrow.
1: So what is it about cinder blocks I've observed bumblebees in my garden for years. They love cinder blocks,
2: yeah, so there's probably the mortar, if there's a place that the mortar has broken down and there's a cavity to get in behind the cinder block, then then they'll they have a, a big enough enlarged space. You can imagine whether those cinder blocks are hollow that creates just this perfect little room that they can start their colony.
1: Yeah, I've got them everywhere in my yard. You know, typically, you know, these are cinder blocks with the two openings.
2: Yep. Sometimes I stack them. They even
1: like them stacked. I'll put one on top of the other. But I have them in all different places in the yard, and they're all being used by bumblebees.
2: (laughs) That's great. I mean, I think we really are looking for subtle ways to provide supplemental nesting sites for bumblebees like that. Some people have experimented with burying an upside down terracotta pot because the, the drainage hole in the pot would become the entrance and exit, for example. So, And some folks have created bumblebee nest boxes, which are basically rectangular wood boxes that you bury and then have a, a tube as the rodent burrow coming up to the soil surface. But they generally don't get used at all. So it's really mysterious about what places and situations bumblebees are attracted to for for nesting and the more that citizen scientists can sort of help report where they're finding nests it's it's super helpful yeah they're very picky aren't they (laughs) yep they're so i said cinderella yeah very very picky
1: yeah okay so now the queen bumblebee establishes her cavity nest under the ground She finds and after she lays Eggs. The eggs hatch. They eat the nectar that was provided, or was it the nectar or the pollen? The pollen. Yep. The pollen. The the eggs hatch and they eat the pollen, and then they emerge as male and female worker bees.
2: Just females. So, just the females are the workers. The males are produced later in the growing season. The queen's mission, if she has a mission and thinks that way, <laughs> is to produce daughters first because they're, they're the workers and help her with rearing more offspring. So that's when the nest truly becomes social. There's the two generations working cooperatively to raise more and more offspring. So males, not to give them a bad name, but they really don't have a significant role in helping with, the, you know, they don't help rear more offspring or once they are produced in the nest and become adults, then they they leave and they don't return. So that's why mid starting in mid to late summer, you see more and more bumblebees out visiting your perhaps flowering perennials in your garden. And you may find ones on cool mornings in late summer, early fall, where they're just sitting on the flowers when you go out in, in the morning into your garden. Those are males because they don't have a nest to return to, so so they're just biding their very short window of time that they live as adults to hopefully find some of those new queens that are being produced and coming out to practice their foraging. Some bumblebee species, the males will set up a territory, and so that may mean that they they find a a meadow that's you know has a lot of flowering plants that they think those new queens will come to 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 visit the flowers and they will set up a territory and actually chase out other males so that they have their (laughs) their space where they are able to find a female to mate with so mating often will occur on flowers so if you'll find and the males are significantly smaller than those new queens so it's kind of a funny (laughs) size difference with the mating but she'll mate with more than one male and she'll store that sperm from mating for the winter as she hibernates and then as she is laying eggs and that's what's interesting about bees is they have a sex determination system where the sperm is stored and as they lay eggs they either fertilize or add sperm to the egg or they don't so eggs that are fertilized produce the female offspring and unfertilized eggs produce males so it's if you think about it from the nesting colony cycle, she's using up that sperm at the beginning of the growing season and laying all fertilized eggs, producing females. And perhaps when she starts to have less sperm for fertilization, that's when she starts laying the unfertilized eggs to produce males later in the summer. So
1: as summer comes to an end and fall starts and the temperatures start to drop, both the female worker bees and the male bees will basically die from the cold?
2: The males will die from the cold and just having a very short two to three week lifespan. The workers, they live longer, but they just end up perishing by the end of the growing season. And then the truly hard frost is what kills off the rest of them, except for those new queens that have already hopefully tucked themselves into an insulated place for the winter.
1: Now, do we know how many queens
2: are produced per cavity? Uh, it really depends on the... The nest and the species and, you know, all the factors such as the availability of flowering plants that are close to the the nesting site, but a bumblebee colony can produce a very small number, a couple hundred bumblebees in total, or maybe 700. So the the number of queens can be quite low, you know, 20, 100 it would be a lot of new queens produced. So similar to a honeybee hive, the, the new queens are fed a Uh, more, a larger diet. And the quantity and quality of food that any bee receives as as larva as they consume it will determine their adult size. So queen bumblebees are significantly larger than their workers or males. And they need that sort of bigger abdominal housing for those fat stores we talked about and uh, ovaries because they're laying a significant number of eggs. So they need that sort of larger size to accommodate all those things.
1: Right. So at the end of the season, I imagine the 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 new females that have emerged who are meant to be queens for the following year, they are out foraging on as much nectar as they can to fatten up. Do they take any food sources with them into their new nest to get through the winter or whatever they eat is what they have to survive on?
2: Yeah, generally whatever they consume is what the builds the stores for them to hibernate. So they're not on a warm winter day leaving to go find some nectar sources. <laughs> that's it. So that's why those fall blooming plants in our gardens are really critical. We talked about the asters and goldenrods and also our native sunflowers are have nectars that are very high in amino acids. And the amino acids are sort of a secondary component in nectar that help those queens build the fat stores that they need. So nutrition it's, is really important for spring and fall for, the, for our native bumblebees.
1: Now, is there any difference in the type of cavity they seek out at the end of the summer versus the nest they look for in the spring? Is it another rodent burrow?
2: Yeah, it's generally a similar site to where they would seek out a nesting site. So it could be related to rodents or a chipmunk burrow, or like we talked about, a really thick compost pile might provide enough insulation above ground. But generally, they're going to probably weather the freeze-thaw and weather patterns throughout the winter if they are below ground versus above ground.
1: Now, I understand there are some pollinators that will, besides nectar and pollen, will also gather plant parts like leaves and blossoms and take them back to their nests. Does the bumblebee do anything like that?
2: No, bumblebees, they're just pollen and nectar collectors, if you put it that way. Um, yes, but you're right. We have a number of our native solitary bees will be collecting different plant materials. um, And usually it's for above ground nesting bees. So bees that are nesting in cavities and they will use different natural plant materials to create partitions and also to cap the end of the cavity. So many bees in the leafcutter bee family will cut pieces of leaves and some species will keep the leaf as a cut piece and overlap that forming a, a leaf cylinder. And that's just an extra envelope that they create inside the cavity for their individual larva to develop. Others will cut leaves or chew up leaves. So I, you may see a bee perched on a leaf, chewing on the leaf edge, and that's called leaf mastication. And so they, they use that chewed up leaf material as a partition in the nest. And then we have bees that will collect plant resins, so really sticky substances such as pine sap that they seek out, collect, carry back to their nest, clasped in their mandibles. Because can you imagine trying to <laughs> handle plant uh, pine, pine sap? And then they spread that on the interior of the cavity as a lining, and it has antimicrobial properties. So there's some real significant reasons why these native bees are doing what they're doing. And you think, why in the world would they, these females, bother to they have to spend so much time finding adequate supply of pollen and nectar to, you know, continue rearing more offspring, than to spend extra time and energy collecting these additional plant materials to line and partition their nests. So yeah. could you just for a moment talk about some of the
1: misconceptions people may have? Could you explain the differences between the non-native honeybee and the bumblebee? The bumblebee is more of a generalist, right? While the honeybee tends to visit only certain plant species, the bumblebee might actually be more of an effective pollinator. Would that be pushing it a little?
2: So bumblebees, yeah, we talked about, we used to think they were generalists, but now we are finding that they do have specific Flower preferences and each species will have their own sort of suite or subset of plants that they like to visit. But regarding pollination, bumblebees in general are better pollinators than honeybees. If you know, if you compared one to one, as we talked about, they, they can fly in cooler temperatures. They have much longer tongues than honeybees. They're bigger and stronger, and so they're able to manipulate more complex flower forms. And the other significant difference between honeybees and many of our native bees, not just bumblebees, is they have the ability to buzz pollinate flowers. So that's literally a shaking mechanism that they use. They vibrate their flight muscles in their thorax and shake pollen from flowers. And many of our native plants require buzz pollination. There's just simply no way to for the bee to extract pollen from the flower other than by using buzz pollination. So for certain instances, plants that we grow, fruits and vegetables, for example, tomatoes, peppers, eggplants, all the plants in the nightshade or solanaceous Plant family require buzz pollination. Our ericaceous plants, so our blueberries, our cranberries, so a lot of our the food crops that we humans eat and depend upon and need pollination of native bees are are more efficient and effective at pollinating them. Where honeybees sort of make up the slack is they're in numbers, <laughs> and so uh, a, an individual honeybee colony can have 10 to 50,000 bees living in it you know in a managed hive so if a grower were to put a hive in their field they're making up the pollination slack essentially in numbers even though they're not as effective or efficient in some cases
1: now i can always tell when the farm up the street has rented their honeybees the truck pulls in with the trays and they set up the honeybees because they all end up down in, in my yard <laughs> And I get so angry when I see them because I know they're not native to the area and they're ripping off my bumblebees.
2: Yeah, for the growers like that, even though they may be, a scientist may demonstrate for an individual grower that they're getting enough pollination from the native bee species. Growers, they'll still bring in a hive or rent a hive for that period of time when their crop is blooming just as an insurance policy. So you're right. Having hives temporarily on site can especially in spring could impact floral resource availability for those spring bumblebees, but it's really dependent on the context and so on. Having hives there all the time has, you know, much larger impacts to the native bee populations. Right. What would
1: you recommend to gardeners who really want to have more bumblebees in their yard? What are the things to avoid? I mean, number one would be pesticides, obviously.
2: Yeah, avoid avoid pesticides. And then the other critical thing we talked about is minimize disturbance. So that means removing plant materials, tromping around in your garden, digging, any of those things will impact not only bumblebees, but other native bee species if you're really keen in early spring, and I forgot to mention this, and you have a place to stand to work from in your garden where you're not stepping in the garden, for example, a sidewalk or a driveway or a path, if you can start with doing a little bit of garden work by not tromping on the garden area, that probably would be okay as long as you're, you know, standing on, on the side. But yeah, it's about thinking a little bit differently about those disturbances that we just, in general, in the past, haven't really thought of as being impactful.
1: I'm just going to jump in and say, also, you don't want to be driving them away with your garden activities either.
2: Yeah, yeah. The queens in the spring are especially skittish. So you would definitely drive them off if you're doing a lot of crazy activity and that's a great thing to think about. In the summer, when you have workers and maybe males visiting your flowering plants, you don't have to worry as much, but you really want that queen to be successful at finding a place to nest and finding enough nutrients as she's doing so. Secondary disturbance, right? Noise pollution, the exhaust from that equipment. I maintain my garden without any gas-powered equipment. I mean, I just just don't. <laughs> and... Really, the message is less is more, right? The, the less that you do in your garden, the more pollinators you will have. And that means just cutting down things a little bit. Yeah, keeping it simple. Follow the template that Mother Nature provides.
1: I'd like to thank Heather Holm for joining us today. Again, the titles of her books are Pollinators of Native Plants, Attract, Observe, and Identify Pollinators and Beneficial Insects with Native Plants, and also Bees, an identification and native plant forage guide covering native trees, shrubs, and perennials in the Northeast, Great Lakes, and Midwest regions. And she has a brand new book coming out in just a couple of months. The new title is Wasps, Their Biology, Diversity, and Role as Beneficial Insects and Pollinators of Native Plants. It's a full-color guide and the first book of its kind regarding wasps. It covers 150 species of flower-visiting wasps in eastern North America. You can follow Heather on Facebook by going to Bee and Pollinators Books by Heather Holm, or you can go to her website and order her books at pollinatorsnativeplants.com.
0: Join Americans everywhere in the One Third for the Birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook.
1: And now for more of my personal story. The next several months were a crash course in wildlife biology and behavior. I guess you could call it a baptism of fire. My mentor calmly talked me through the treatment of each new patient, and each day I learned more and more about the complexities of wildlife rehabilitation. One of the first things I learned about was capture myopathy. Capture myopathy is muscle degeneration that can occur in a wild animal who is put through undue and prolonged physical exertion and mental distress. My mentor explained that the Florida Keys is overflowing with housing projects that encroach on nearly every bit of pristine wildlife habitat there is. To say that there is a high incidence of human-to-wild animal interaction would be an understatement. It is just these types of interactions, she said, that lead wild animals, especially wild birds, to suffer stress-related debilitation and death. When a wild bird attempts to flee a potentially dangerous situation, Its metabolism switches from aerobic to an anaerobic fight-or-flight reaction. This leads to an overflow of lactic acid, which results in the death of muscle cells and myoglobin, an oxygen-binding protein found in muscle tissue. The accumulation of myoglobin in tissues and the bloodstream can lead to organ failure, especially of the kidneys, and it often ends in a fatality. One bird very prone to capture myopathy is the great blue heron. This graceful, long-legged waterbird may be tall, strong, and fast when it comes to spearing fish, yet is very fragile when it comes to human interaction. In those first several months that I was working at the center, we had quite a number of great blue herons brought in who couldn't stand up or walk. X-rays showed no fractures or external injuries, and they were a decent weight, so the weakness was not due to starvation. Once we learned what happened to the bird, a tourist with a camera came too close in order to gain a close-up, Someone let their dog off leash and it gave chase, fireworks were set off in someone's backyard, or a speedboat drove recklessly close to the bird. We knew it was capture myopathy. So here's the dilemma. How do you rehabilitate a bird that can't be handled because the stress of handling will only worsen the myopathy? We set up special enclosures in quiet areas with tenting set up inside the cage for extra privacy, and we kept our interactions to an absolute minimum. Capture myopathy unfortunately prevents the great blue from standing and walking. With a large bird like a heron, it is imperative that they keep moving. Without movement, the blood flow to their three-foot-long legs is decreased to a perilous point, and the feet and legs begin to die. So we employed special slings. We employed water therapy. We employed special medications. And yet some of them still died. It was frustrating and heartbreaking, and I got my first big taste of just how challenging this job was going to be. The euphoria of the first few weeks was gone. Yet another heron had died, and my mentor could see I was going to lose composure. She told me to meet her outside, and we both walked around the perimeter of the center. We walked together quietly for a while, and then she looked at me point blank and said, there's something you need to understand. These birds are not coming to us for summer camp, They are here because they're at death's door. The truth is, we will be able to help many of them, but not all of them. I nodded my head in agreement, but the tears were still falling. I just couldn't stand to see another bird suffering. You have to let go of the ones that don't make it, she said. If you don't, you will go crazy. Take it from someone who knows. I was very quiet at dinner that night, and my husband could tell something in me had changed. I wasn't my exuberant self, telling him excitedly about the stories of all the birds that had come into the center that day for help. I was quiet because I was trying to decide if I was strong enough to continue. If I did go back, I would have to accept the losses along with the recoveries. I felt a part of my innocence drop away as I fell asleep that night. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now.